Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Nuria Newman, the incredible French whitewater kayaker. She is one of the best kayakers in the world, if not the best right now. I had such a blast interviewing her, and we had this conversation while Nuria was at a cafe in Ecuador, which is why you hear a lot more of the the sound of the cafe. And this was just a few days after she made history and did a 100-foot waterfall descent. In this episode, we discuss her love of kayaking and how it all began. At the age of four, without knowing how to swim, it was love at first sight when she saw her first kayak. And over the last two decades, she has been pushing the barriers of paddling traveling the world to find the most amazing rivers and waterfalls to explore. We discuss everything from her feelings of fear and what keeps her coming back to the sport, and also what it's like doing solo trips, which are quite controversial. And one of her solo trips was to northern India, and that changed her perspective in more ways than one. Nuria reminds me to always remember the most important thing, and that's to have fun. Connect with the things you love, the people, the water, and the world. Please enjoy this episode with the phenomenal Nuria Newman. Hi, Nuria. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Now, where in the world are you today? I know you travel quite a bit. I'm in Ecuador. Just finished off a big project. Now it's my last day. I have a friend coming up and then I'm back in France. For those who don't know, can you explain what your project was in Ecuador? It's pretty epic. (laughs) Initially, we were there to scope out some first descent with Ben Stooksbury, who is the, probably the most accomplished expedition kayaker in whitewater. And we tried to do that and definitely got skunked with weather forecast and permits and everything. But it was good to get a feel for the place and the rivers and how things are working out here. And then I had a big project to run a 100-foot waterfall. It initially was in Canada, but with COVID and travel restriction, it was already supposed to happen last year. And this year, I had a big uncertainty whether or not I could make it happen. And then this friend of ours had this waterfall that he had scouted. So we spent quite a few hours and days looking at it. And then eventually last week we made it happen. So I was pretty happy to, to break that 100 feet mark. And now I'm just looking forward to go home and maybe I'll see the physio again. Exactly. Well, <laughs> amazing. Know, everything in order. <laughs> Congratulations for the unbelievable feat. That is fantastic. And so you are one of the world's leading kayakers redefining whitewater sports. 
And while most paddlers struggle to master just one sport, you compete in canoeing and freestyle and extreme kayaking, and you excel in pretty much every one of them. Every sporting contest that you enter, you pretty much podium finish when it is a competition. But before we talk more about your amazing career path in, in kayaking, can we rewind your highlight reel a little bit and start with your childhood? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in a pretty ideal place for a kid to grow up. I grew up in the Alps in a small village called the Villa Reginal. There's literally less than 20 houses, no shops, no nothing. And we did spend a lot of time just playing outside and doing random things and annoying the neighbors and things like this. But I feel like I grew up with a lot of freedom in the sense that I could just get out from my house and go play in the snow in the winter, go play in the mountains in the summer. And so you saw your first kayak at the age of five, which is pretty incredible because usually I ask people more about their childhood, but you saw and fell in love instantly. <laughs> what was your parents' reaction when you said you wanted a kayak when you were five? Yeah, I actually asked them when I was four. Some of my dad's friends came with a kayak, had the house on the, on the top of their car. And at that time, I was my passion was, was not sport or kayaking or whatever. I really like Playmobil toys. Like I was a fanatic with Playmobil toys and I had a car that was just the same color as my dad's friend's kayak. And so, you know, in my small mind of four-year-old girl, I was like, this is just a massive Playmobil. I want to do this thing. This is the coolest toy. You know, when you're kidding, you have terrible taste and you think the bigger the toys are, the better, you know. It's like Christmas, the bigger the package, the better you think it is, but it's not how it works. You learn that later on. So I, re- I was like, I want to do this. And my parents, they're like, no, you're, you're too young. You don't know how to swim. Like you're not starting kayaking until you know how to swim. So that next summer, I actually went to the swimming lessons, mostly because they said no. And, and I really wanted to just do it you know it was kind of like a challenge I didn't even know what kayaking was at this point but took the swimming lessons came back home with like the certificate and some ugly gold and blue medal that say you can swim by yourself and I was just so proud and then forced them to drive me to the kayak club and started kayaking or at least started sitting in a kayak because you're so small at those age that you're pretty useless. So that's how it started, just them saying no and me wanting to just give it a go. You won your first race at the age of eight, and I read an article, an interview that you did, that you mentioned a family friend taught you how to roll in Costa Rica, and that changed how you felt about yourself and your confidence. Can you describe that in detail? I know that was a long time ago, but what was that like? When I understood the role and how to play with the water, I think that's when I really started kayaking. I was eight when I started working on it, and I was nine when I actually started like rolling more consistently. And so all along the way, you're working on your skills paddling, but you decided to go to university. What did you study? I have a master's in political science and journalism. I think the French system is very different from the United States. 
And that's what most people don't understand in my sport because it's such a North American male-dominated sport that people assume you have the same background as they do. But it's very different in Europe because we have a club system. We have a strong social tradition. So it costs $100 for a year for a kid to kayak. And then they lend you the gear. You have a coach. Like It's cheap compared to the U.S. to start some of these outdoor sports with the clubs back home. And then same thing. Universities are like public or some of them. And so... It's quite cheap. And then with sports, you can even get more help and get a scholarship. So it is very normal for people pursuing like a high performance sport career to still go at university on the side. Usually they don't pick political science. They go towards like sport or some other studies. But yeah, I think it was pretty normal. And, and since the very beginning, my contract with my parents was like okay for kayaking but you gotta be good at school so if I had bad grades or if I had any behavior problem at school with some of the teacher it meant no more kayaking and I felt like this was good in the sense that for me there was no way I would quit studying just to kayak because it's very precarious like right now it's my job <laughs> and I'm really happy, you know, like it, I do what I love. But at the same time, it's not super stable, you know, like I still live at my parents, whether it's sometimes at my dad, sometimes at my mom's, do not pay rent and be able to afford traveling. So people always see it like, ah, oh, oh, you're a Red Bull athlete, you're just professional kayaker, your life must be great. And my life is great, but thank God I have amazing parents that I can base myself at their houses and, and hang out with. Yeah, so. that's wonderful. I mean, some people run trails, you run waterfalls. What is it about the sport that draws you in? You find it to be so magnetic. And you mentioned many times in a lot of the interviews you do that this is the beauty that you want to be around and what gives you so much happiness. What is it about the sport that you're drawn to? I think there are two sides. There's the sport itself. And, you know, that would be playing with the waves and, and running waterfall and getting that free fall and the sensation and the satisfaction you, you get from, I would say, the sport part of kayaking. But what I like, too, is that kayaks are such a good mean of transportation and they give you a good excuse to, to travel differently and to do things differently. And to connect with people because when you travel with a kayak, usually you have this weird, big plastic thing. And then people come to you because they want to know, hey, what is this? What are you doing? And then it's really easy to start conversation, connect with people, make friends. And then when you're looking for new rivers or when you're going on expedition, our most reliable source of information, you know, we use satellite imagery and things like this, but then usually the best is to just go to the local people and go to the local farms and just ask them, have you ever been up there? Did you see? And then they tell you, and sometimes you're like, ah, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. Maybe we shouldn't trust them. And 
and you reach the big waterfall that lands on rocks and you're like, oh yeah, he's probably right. He's been coming to fish here, things like this. But yeah, it gives you the opportunity to, to just really see the place, but not from a hotel or not from a typical tourist perspective. We usually end up staying at, at people's house a few times in the trip, whether that's the families or local kayakers or just farmers that we meet along the way. That's beautiful. So that's pretty cool. That is really cool. I, I love how you mentioned, oh, shoot, you're going down a waterfall into rocks. I don't think that's what I think in my head. I think a lot worse <laughs> things, but you're you're saying it with a smile on your face, which is fantastic. For the listeners who don't know the difference, can you explain the difference between slalom, which you compete at, and white water sports, but just the difference of the different paddling you do? Slalom is the ultimate competitive whitewater discipline for me. It is at the Olympics and it's really hard to get a spot at the Olympics. There is only one French girl every four years that can go. And before that, you need to qualify the country, which usually we don't have problems with because we have very strong density in that sport in Europe because of the club system. And so slalom, you it's a race against the clock. So you get a start and then you have to go through gates and as fast as possible to reach the finish. If you touch one gate, you get a two-second penalty. If you miss one gate, it's pretty much done because you get 50 seconds penalty and you, you don't come back from that. Usually to get in the finals or to get on the podium, we're talking like splits of seconds. And so that's really well organized, really structured. You know, you, you go from, you have five World Cups a year, European Championships, World Championships, you train for French elections. And, and that's very well established. You usually get a coach and a team and, and you don't need to do anything. You know, you travel by plane from one venue to the other, stay at the hotel. Your coach is pretty much organizing everything for you. Which is not a nice at time, you know, you're just there to perform and that's the only thing you need to know. Whereas whitewater and river running, there are competitions, but I feel like it's like skiing. It's not necessarily the only or the main focus. And then the rest of it, it's, it's your responsibility to kind of find projects that you want to do and then pitch them and then hopefully get them approved and... And so you, you pick and choose what you want to do, which I like. It gives you more freedom in that sense. But on the other side, what people don't do is that you end up kind of having your own company where you pitch your own project, they get approved, then you, you, know, you do your own accounting. You, for sponsors, you need to be good at taking photos, you need to take videos, you need to write, you need to edit those videos or edit those photos. Eventually, you need to somehow understand digital marketing, although sometimes it goes way beyond what you want to do. And when you do this, because the main thing that, that you do as a job is the kayaking, you also need to train and be good at it. And, and I, I think it's hard. I see a lot of people getting lost in that. And so they become content creator more than athletes and I just see them slowly not keeping focus on kayaking or the sport and then slowly they 
they don't become as good as they should be to be a professional. So I think that's the main, the main difference is. That's great. You're known to be a very technical paddler. And I've read one interview that you would just work on your forward strokes for hours and hours and hours a day. Do you prepare to be an overall great athlete or do you prepare for each of the river runs that you do? I think you can't really prepare for every single river because you'd have to know them by heart and the time on each river. And and I think part of why I like white water is because I want to know different rivers. But I think if you're good technically and you're good at reading water, then it's really easy to transfer it to any kind of river. And I think the technical background is definitely very much connected to France and the club system and the federation and the coaches I've had that were some coaches are more focused about physical capabilities and the mental aspect of things and and my coaches they were really into technique from the beginning and so they were technique freaks and then I became a technique freak and I, I still love it I still the way I paddle rivers, I still have a slalom technique approach of things. Like if I'm on an easy run, I'm going to try to challenge myself to do like really technical moves on an easier stretch. And I think slalom overall is really helping my river running. Even for that big waterfall, rewatching the footage, I'm just doing a very long, very typical slalom paddle stroke which we call a draw just above the waterfall and I'm like oh I should send that to my slalom coach I haven't done it yet it's amazing well about six or seven years ago you mentioned that you switched from slalom to white water officially and didn't compete as much can we talk about your injury and I think your reaction to morphine oh yeah I quit slalom right after having a, a terrible year on a personal level, I had a few losses that I couldn't process at all. And then I got the surgery as well. And and before I went to the surgery, I met the I met assistant. She's super cool. And I remember she's like, you know, don't hesitate. Before, when you feel it's going to hurt, before it hurts, you just press the morphine pump. And so I was like, sweet, okay, I will do that. You know, like if if you're going to get to the hospital doing nothing, you might as well be high. Except I did use the pump a lot, but normally it shouldn't happen. Like it's just that my body didn't react super well to it. So I pretty much don't remember what happened during those three days. But apparently I did vomit on my mom and yeah, not doing too good on morphine. And then that probably didn't help some of the trauma I've had because I had to go see a psychologist because I kept doing those horrible nightmares. And I think at the beginning it was it was connected to the morphine. So definitely had to work on that. And then, yeah, performing was, was no longer something that I would prioritize over anything else. And I think that's why I kind of slowly step away from it. 
And I remember reading in, in an article that a lot of things personally happened to you. Can you share some of the stories? Yeah, then I just lost friends on the river. They drowned and I, and it hurts, you know. And, and the problem is that year I, I lost seven friends in the same year. And so I, I would be devastated and then I would like try to get better and then something else would happen and and amongst the seven friends I had I lost Louise who was one of my very best friends. I'd like to think we like almost family and that hurt definitely more than, than anything else and, and after that it doesn't make sense to go from one race to another with a bunch of people that you don't like and they don't like you to compete and and stand on the box and get a piece of metal around your neck that some random politician in a suit just hand over to you, you know, like it's like, okay, I've, I've done that and I, I always thought it was going to change my life, you know, and I'd be the happiest person uh, once I get a world championship medal or, or something like that. And, and I think... I realized that it wasn't that and that it wasn't necessarily making me happy so that I should focus on the things that I really want to do. And so I started going on trips over training in, in slalom and slowly drifted away from the sport, although I never admitted it. And so when I officially was like, okay, I'm, I'm done, I'm quitting, had this friend of mine, he's a super good slalom paddler, his name is already like he's like, Noria, you quit three years ago. But I was like, yeah, but I was kind of training. He's like, no, you were just paddling. And that's okay. But I'm glad you, you're realizing that you're done now. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. So this summer, or last summer, my son and I were watching some videos on YouTube and just extreme sports. And your video came up on your trip in 2018 when you were filming yourself in northern India, and it was a solo trip. Can you describe for our listeners how special that is? Because I think when you're thinking about mountain climbing, Alex Honnold and his free solo documentary made solo climbing seem like the new hot sport, and it's quite dangerous. Extreme kayaking alone is equivalently very dangerous and not typical. Can you share the history of that and why you decided to paddle 200 miles on your own in northern India? Yeah, going solo is always really controversial because uh, one of the first things that you get taught when you start kayaking is never go alone. <laughs> because if you go alone, you don't have safety. Turns out sometimes do controversial things. <laughs> and after I stopped competing, I no longer wanted to go to place just for a competition and take a plane back and fly back. So I decided to, we had this race in India and then we stayed two more weeks in, in the state of Kerala in the south. And we wanted to explore rivers. We had done the homework, we map out all the rivers. And then when we got there, we couldn't get any of the permits everywhere we were trying to go. We're getting stopped by the police. We've actually probably visited more police station and administration offices than the rivers we paddled. So that was really frustrating. And when the time came to catch my flight back home, I was like, I want to kayak in India. 
distance was not enough. So I decided to stay and this friend of mine, Shalab, he had told me about this river trip that a lot of people do it sometimes later on in the season, sometimes not entirely. And I was like, looked into it and it didn't seem too hard. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to get those paddle strokes in India that I wanted to, to do. And, and it will be cool to just do that river trip alone in the Himalayas. The problem is that I did way too many mistakes in the preparation along the way. The map I had was wrong. So none of the gradient that I had mapped out was matching the reality. So I didn't know where the bigger rapids would be because the map, they made it, they made the lines randomly where, where the river crosses and it didn't make any sense. And then I didn't acclimatize proper to elevation. So I was a little bit dizzy and, you know, not so good because you go up to 2,500 meter past twice before you get to the river in the same day. And then the river is at like, over 4,000, which is crazy. And then I have problems focusing, especially when I'm alone, you know, like I like looking at the clouds, I like looking at the animals, and, and then sometimes I forget to look at the river, which can be a big problem in this case. And so I lost focus. I didn't scout one rapid that I should have scouted, and eventually, I had an accident happen to me, which I got stuck in what we call a siphon. And then I had a super gnarly swim all by myself, and it was terrifying, and I still had five days to go. So beyond the scary incident, it was really hard to be facing yourself and your own fears during those five days. And I've definitely learned a lot of things. For example, that I'm still scared of dark at night when I'm alone <laughs> you know and just things like this that, that you figure out about yourself that you're like I'm not scared of the dark doing all this crazy stuff and then you're like oh yeah I'm totally scared of the dark and I'm being paranoid right now but that's okay it was, it was definitely a tough side of things but I think overall I'm, I'm still happy I did it and definitely super grateful that I made it out <laughs> Well, that was the part that we watched. So my son and I were watching and in the siphon that you were stuck in, it was um, miraculous that you actually were able to get out. What were you thinking in that moment or in moments of stress where you're submerged, you're flipped over and you're stuck in siphon-like conditions where, from what I understand, it's like a toilet flush, right? It's a really hard gravitational pull and it's hard to physically get out without some luck. So I, when, when it happens, you know, the first reaction is like, oh, yeah, bad words. Usually it's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I, I don't know. There's no other way to say it. You stay pretty calm because you focus on what you have to do. So put my dry bag on shore, jam my paddle on shore. I started flipping my boat to hopefully jump out on shore and pull my boat out. But as I did that, it didn't work out. And I started getting sucked down under with my boat. So I just remember pushing it as far away as I could. Because you don't want to be with such a big object because you might get stuck. I remember just being so angry and being like, such an idiot. I can't believe you made such a beginner mistake. 
and now it's 50-50 whether you come out or not. But I didn't see my life going, you know, in front of my eyes or things like this. It's all pretty, pretty rational and pretty mellow and a lot of anger, like, towards myself that I was an idiot. But that's about it. Now, I remember at this point, you had five more days to go. And right when you got out, you were so open and honest and saying, you're cold, you're scared. Did you ever think after the second day, after that incident, to just go to shore and not risk your life for the rest of the five days? Well, I would have loved that, you know, like (laughs) if there would have been an option that could be dropping myself in my mom's living room and she would make me hot chocolate and hug me, I would have definitely done that. But there was no trail, no road around and... So I had to get going. Like people were like, oh, you're so right. I'm like, no, I had no other options. It's totally different. And then eventually I met those little monks along the way. And I was like, okay, yeah. See those kids playing with your gear. Like this is why you kayak because it's fun. And if you're not having fun, you should just stop. And then that was good because instead of just focusing on how messed up things were, kind of just put back in the right mind state that I need to just have fun. This is why I do it. And so that helped. And after that, things got better for sure. Can you walk through a typical day? Is it training? Is it scouting trips? Is it reading lines, creating lines with friends? What is a typical day for Noria? That's the thing. There's no typical days. When you travel, it's just every time different. It really depends on on weather conditions. Back home, it's a little bit more mellow. We have gauges, so I can just open my phone at breakfast and be like, ah, water levels is too low. Let's go do something else that's like physical training, but not necessarily kayaking, because I find that otherwise I get burnt out. I do it all the time. I still spend probably over 250 days on the river a year. So when you take off the travel days, then I need a few days off sometimes. So when I'm home, conditions are not ideal. I don't feel like it. Usually I try to do something else, whether it's hiking or running or climbing or skiing. Definitely been spending more time in the mountains with COVID and being at home. And it's been really great. And I feel like it's been really helping my kayaking for expeditions. So I... I want to keep doing that. But there is no typical day because we're so, we're relying on the weather so much that what's the forecast? And it could be raining like four hours away. And you're okay, I'm putting a sleeping bag and I'm just taking off there because water levels are good. And I'll sleep in the car or whatever. <laughs> and so it's a lot of last minute things like that, depending on, on conditions. And, what's there or not. You are one of the best, if not the best, extreme kayaker in the world right now. I have a question for my seven-year-old that when we were watching the show, and we watched a few clips, whether you were going down certain white water rapids or going down 50 or 60 or 70 feet drops in waterfalls, he asked, does she get scared? I do get scared. I think getting scared is, is really important. If you're not scared, you're, you're dead. Because being scared is also what's going to help you make a good judgment. You see a rapid, you see the dangers, 
you have to be scared. If not, if not, you're just crazy. And so I'm always scared and nervous. And, and then with that fear, I decide, okay, I've got this. I can break it down like this. Or if I'm too scared and I don't feel it, I just portage. And so it means you take your kayak on your shoulder and you, you carry your boat around the rapid and you put on below. I think fear is a, is a really good thing. A lot of the time people see it as a bad thing because they can't control it and you freeze. And I think that's bad. You know, you, you want to be scared and still be functioning, but you, you can learn that. And so I think fear is something that is always perceived as something really negative. But I think it's something great. You have to be scared and you have to embrace being scared at the same time. Otherwise, if you hate it, don't do it. But there is a way to... I think, you know, like a lot of time people are like, oh, yeah, you do this for the adrenaline and share the adrenaline is, is something. But I think I do this because I like being scared in some ways. But when you're just a good enough amount of scared and then you do it and it's really satisfying and to to overcome that it's always really satisfying that's but yeah i'm usually really scared you should see how i drive i drive like a grandma (laughs) and make fun of me because i'm too slow and i never want to pass trucks like in the u.s they start counting on a road trip how many times i get passed by a truck in a two-hour driving shift because then i also insist to switch every two hours (laughs) Because traffic scares me more than kayaking. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Well, thank you for answering that fear question. And I'm sure my son will enjoy that. I'll start asking the questions I typically ask everyone, starting with who or what inspires you? I had so many. I was so lucky. I met so many inspiration people in my life that, and I still do, uh, that have changed, you know, the way I paddle and the way I see things. And so I met all those great paddlers when I was a kid and it enabled me to tag along with them. And so that was really good. And then I feel like I get inspired by a lot of people I meet. And sometimes, you know, it's just people from the farm that you meet and they have, you just get to know them and they have their own problems and they have their own work and, and you just see them and they're so strong. And I, and I think... You know, that's inspiring way more than some of the guys I hang out with and they do crazy things in their kayaks, but then they have nothing to tell sometimes. And so that I I don't find too inspiring. But yeah, I think if you know someone well enough, you can find an inspiration in pretty much anyone and their trajectories and their stories. And that's why I like to meet those people and when you get to spend quality time with them and if, if they open up, you can learn so much from people you didn't even expect you'd be learning. Well, I've learned kayaking moves from a nine years old before, just watching. And so that's pretty cool. I think you need to seek inspiration way beyond where you think it is because the obvious is not necessarily the most inspiring. Well, I definitely get inspiration from you. I watch your videos and there's so many things that go across my mind in terms of your strength, your vulnerability, your athleticism, all these things. And 
I would not say I'm even remotely an amateur kayaker. (laughs) So I I think that I agree with you. You could find inspiration from a lot of places. Do you have a mentor or role model in the sport or in any sport? But do you have a role model? Because you live such a contrarian lifestyle and it's quite beautiful. I'm curious if you look up to someone for this path. I look up to so many paddlers. Like I look up to Ben Stooksbury for expedition kayaking. And then I look up to Benny Marr for his approach to the river. I look up to Anil for his ninja skills. I look up to Sven Lammers when it comes to headspace because he's just at the next level. And I, I there's so many paddlers that I look up to, like Shannon Carroll and Nikki Kelly, who pushed the female kayaking so far. And, and they were the ones in the previous generation just doing the same rapids as the boys, opening up lines, getting first descents that were not female first descents. They were just legit first descents. And I think all of these people, you know, Rash Sturges, Evan Garcia, they're really people that I, I look up to in my paddling for sure. That's amazing. Well, you mentioned there's a lot of women who've opened up the sport. I mean, you've almost single-handedly expanded the sport of kayaking, which is amazing and a testament to your skill. There's one site, there's only less than 10 people that have traveled. Can you talk about that? I think it was Site Z. Oh, many people run Site Z now. Oh, they do. Okay. At the time, there was less than 10 people, right? At the time when I ran it, it wasn't that many people that had run it. It had been opened up by Benny Moore two years before that. And it's just a huge rapid on a huge river that is Kistikin, which is pretty much the Everest of kayaking. So it's a huge reference in the sport. And it's a really, really big rapid. But there are many rivers and there are many big rapids. It's just that this one is very well known. So it has become a reference where sometimes you get to river and really, really hard rapids, just equally as hard as Side Z, but no one knows them. So people don't quite get a scale for what it is. And so that's also the annoying part of things is that everyone's just doing the same things and hitting up the classics rather than trying to explore new rivers. And that makes it hard for European paddlers or South American paddlers because everything tends to be focused in the US and Canada when really there are great things happening in other countries, but it's very much ethnocentered, like most things these days. And so I got lucky that I was able to travel in the U.S. and get on those rivers and get a reference from those travels within the sport and within the industry, because otherwise I would still be the French girl that no one's ever heard of. And like some of the kids that have really hard rivers in Chile, now it's changing. I think like maybe that's one good thing about social media is that you can showcase things way easier than it used to and get more attention. But yeah, side Z's big, but many other rapids are just equally as big and harder. Got it. You've traveled the world, traveled to dozens of countries, kayaked hundreds of rivers. What are you most proud of? I don't know. It's a hard one. I'm pretty proud of the waterfall we run last week. That was a really big rapid. There is one rapid in Argentina that we first descended that I thought was 
really big that I was proud of. I'm definitely proud of my first Tikin running sighted. I ran this big waterfall in Quebec last fall, and that was a really committing drop, and I was really proud of that. I think all the big lines you're proud of, for sure, but it's, it's more like something inside you that, you know, you were scared. It was on the line of what it was possible for you or not, and, and you did it. And so that always makes you proud. Just given the namesake of the show, I ask all my guests to talk about failure and struggle. And if you can share, what was one of your biggest growth moments that you could share with our listeners? Oh, I, I had so many. So I think I, I would just pick an early one because I felt like it was not necessarily the biggest one, but maybe it was at a very important time because I was a teenager and we went to run this waterfall and it was 17 meter waterfall. I had never run something that high. I didn't have a boat. I borrowed a kayak. Everything was like kind of just red flag, but I thought, nothing could happen to me like I was so convinced that I was invincible like teenager that I had this that I had the skills and I went for it and I fully messed up my lines and got thrown from three meters onto a cliff bounced off the cliff onto the other cliff on the other side of the waterfall big concussion broken nose I smashed my whole face so I looked super ugly my friends in high school started calling me Scarface and my mom called me Kutah, which is like scabber for a bit. And I think at this point I understood that I was never going to be good enough and that the river will always win and that you really need to respect it and kind of put in the work if you want things to happen and that sometimes it's also okay to just walk away from a project because it's not the time I was not prepared I was just too young so ever since my mom hates waterfall (laughs) and she has all the right in the world (laughs) I know that you have a very special tattoo on your arm can you share what it is and what it means yeah I have I have a never forget the most important thing tattooed on my arms it's from a note from a my friend Louise who passed away and it's her handwriting and it's in case I, I get lost along the way. When it's people I don't like to ask me, oh, your tattoo is kind of stupid. I just tell them, yeah, it's to not forget my wallet and my passport. You know, so, and I just don't want to answer, but it's to not forget the important things and to not forget to have fun and, and spend time with the people I love because time is probably the most precious thing you can have. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your time. This was an amazing conversation. I had a blast. What is next for Nuria Newman? I'm not sure what's next. I'm just going to go home and travel safely. And yeah, just going to go home, travel home and kind of relax for a bit because I'm uh, pretty wrecked right now. That trip in Ecuador kind of wrecked me towards the end with some small injuries. I did a full rapid on my head and open up my knuckles. So that's pretty bad. It's really ugly. I've got the ugliest hands ever. But then the ladies from the farm, they put some boa fat on my hand and they made me drink it. And 
I was pretty skeptical, but they've never healed so fast. So I'm really happy about that. I've never heard of boa fat, but now I'm highly intrigued. <laughs> Not to, you yeah, should bottle this crazy. up. This will be your cash cow after kayaking is bottling that up. Ecuadorian boa fat. Yeah, just going home and, and relaxing for a few days and probably going to go skiing uh, after spending time hiking in the jungle and being all sweaty and and wet all the time. I'm really looking forward for snow and no trees, just no trees. <laughs> Do you think about career goals? Do you think about doing, you know, 110 foot drop next time or expanding your record you know how do you think about career goals to push yourself you know, I, I think the 100 foot mark is quite something no woman has done it and and it's the free you know like it's definitely not too many people have done it quite a few people but not too many people and i did that on the first descent on the line that is not easy i'm not sure if i want to if i want to do 110 115 then it becomes a little bit like Dumb, I'm not paddling for records. I think maybe, let's say, if I see a waterfall that is really appealing and happens to be higher, I would run it. I see a beautiful waterfall that is not as high, but I really like the look of it. I would run it, but I'm, I'm not necessarily in there for the record. If I like the line, I will. If not, I won't. What I would really like to do next is get back more into expedition kayaking and I have a pretty big project with Ben so I hope we can do that and after that yeah first descents and are going to places that no one really goes and using the kayak as a means of transportation I feel like that is definitely more appealing to me than than first descents in terms of big rapids or big waterfall like I still like it but I feel like I want a big expedition and I, I'm going to keep training for that to carry a loaded boat and suffer. But when, <laughs> when you're in there, then usually it's so worth it. So. Amazing. Noria, thank you so much for taking the time in your busy day, your crazy trip to spend time speaking with me. Thank you so much. Thank you.